Hello everybody, it's really cool to have some uh, exciting guests here today, uh, people I've known of for years and so this is a really exciting moment for me, especially having a one and a half year old son now myself, my first child. Uh, so Sharon and Bram, really excited to have you with us. And where I like to start usually is to get our guests to tell us a little bit about their backstory or their journey. So perhaps I'll get you both to tell us a little bit from your perspective about the backstory. And maybe what I'll do just to keep it easy is I'll maybe ask uh, Sharon for you to go first and then Bram. Or you guys can just... Sure. Well, that's the order of our names. So that, that's perfect. Yeah, uh, I, I paid more for that order. <laughs> and, and you guys know each other so well, you may decide to inter interject and that's oh, okay. Oh, we too. will. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> okay, so I'll start. 40 years ago, it's, it's going to seem, it's 40 and a half years, um, we made our first record, which is called One Elephant, Jose Lefant. It's probably still the most popular of all of our records, and we are very proud of that record. We were friends and colleagues. Lois and I met through um, a mutual friend. We were not friends or colleagues at that time. She introduced us because we were both doing music for children, and the friend thought we should know each other. She became involved, as Bram and I were, in Mariposa in the schools. Mariposa Folk Festival spawned a program that put performers like us into the schools on a freelance basis to sing with the children. We decided, the three of us decided, to make a record. And it wasn't... A, a record. A record. A exactly. record. <laughs> it wasn't a decision to start a career. Do you want to carry on? So we made a record. <laughs> and... It was very quickly picked up and spread across Canada. The uh, CBC Radio, I have to say, uh, liked us and they put us on the air and we were from Newfoundland out to Vancouver Island. And that picked us up and spread us to within a year. We were known across Canada. We were called to do concerts in places as, as diverse as Vancouver. That was the first out of Ontario call, and it came to my house because my address was on the album. And the call came from Chris Wooten, who was the artistic director of the International Children's Festival there, which was a fabulous festival. We were thrilled to be part of it. I would just want to say also that two things. We did not start this, as Bram said, the intention was one record. The interesting thing about our approach is that mostly when people make a record, they work together, they've sung together, they've rehearsed, they're used to being uh, a musical ensemble. That was not the case with us. When we decided to make a record, that's when we started singing together and creating arrangements and so forth. So it was quite unusual. It was backwards. And the other thing is that we borrowed $20,000 from family and friends to make that record. They were people whom I'm sure did not expect to see a penny back, but the record came They figured out. it was charity, yeah. <laughs> and, and we intended to pay them back. Oh, of course, but we didn't know that how quickly we would be able to do that. The record came out in September of 78, and by December we had a party, and we put their checks in Christmas crackers, and they, they got their money back. But they supported us because they believed in what we were doing. Now, don't get confused about 78. It was a 33. <laughs> <laughs> We're not that old. <laughs> 1978. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> that's that's amazing. And, and that's not expected, obviously, whenever a person, in Canada especially, when a person releases their first record. Oh, shocking. No. We, we printed 5,000. We thought, oh, that's going to be way more than enough. Uh, and before Christmas, we were out. I mean, we were sold out. Before Christmas. And uh, it's a terrible dilemma when you're a, an artist in demand and you don't have the, <laughs> yeah. the record. <laughs> whatever they are to, to put out there. So I think we did get some more out we early did. in the next year, but not for Christmas. What was that. it? I don't I, I'm not sure about that. I, I just know that uh, 5,000 was the number, and, and uh, we debated a lot and uh, decided that was enough. And then, you know, the worst thing that can happen is that you don't... You, you print records and you don't sell them. The second worst thing is, that can happen is you sell out all of the ones you've got and you've got no more to sell. That was a nice problem. And, and as you said, I mean, that really was meant to be one record. One record and we'd continue with our own solo careers. And obviously the success of that record, and okay, I'll, I won't assume, yes. I shouldn't say obviously. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking the success of that record made you guys say, wait a minute, we're impacting lives or something here, we need to... We tried to continue solo for a while, and then we realized that the demands for us as a, as a trio with Lois were so strong that that was going to be our, our job for and, the and foreseeable future. And I don't think we ever had a meeting about, well, I think now we're going to be a trio. I think in, mostly it was responding. You know, people kept reaching out to us to do performances here and performances there, and the response, you know, the being together as a trio was an, would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. Was a, a response. I mean, I used to say to people, we spent at least the first couple of years running to keep up with all that was happening with us, because it was all new. We didn't know how to run a record company. We owned our record company, so we had to learn how to run a business, how to how to organize touring and marketing. We knew none of that. It never occurred to us to take an idea to a record company and say, here's our idea. Will you make this fund, fund this up and give us a piece? And you take a piece, we'll take a piece. Never occurred to us because we had been, all of us, three separately, involved in doing music with children for years before, which you didn't talk about at all, and we knew, we knew how to work with children, we knew the repertoire they'd like, they knew, we knew how to do it with them. I had been a school teacher for seven years. And we knew our values. Exactly. Which were going to be part of the whole picture. So, it never occurred to us to take this on an on a idea on a platter to the suits. We knew that we needed to do it ourselves and be in complete control of everything that went into those groups at the time. And that's what we did. And that's what the fundraiser was for, was to so plan, uh, select repertoire, arrange for musicians and artwork and printing 5,000. We did that and all. Pay the, and pay the lawyer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> $20,000 did all of that. That was and a those long days, time ago. That, that was a lot of money in those days. Yeah. But 20000 did all that. So here's, as you're saying this, I'm thinking how interesting this is because what you did then was what the kids today are calling crowdsourcing and right. Kickstarter and GoFundMe right. and those indie. campaigns. And Indiegogo. Indie. 
and Indian and, campaigns. Yeah, the, he's talking about the way they're raising money. I know. Yeah. And yes. you were doing that. Right. Like, that's pioneering, really. And they're doing, you know, we went through a phase where people spent hundreds of thousands of dollars to make records. I mean, some people still do. Yeah, then but they put it on Spotify and make point zero 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 because they go, they've come back to the kind of crowdfunding and making less expensive records because they're making them in their homes or in their friends' studios. It's, the world is changing. And they're, and they're making no money from it. I mean, we had the good fortune of earning a good living for us, and we also supported a team of people, musicians, people who ran our business. We, we had an office that had staff. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. And doing something that you love to do. How lucky is that? And so interestingly, and I, I, I want to keep on this path, but a segue, I guess, is you know, now you're on the, the 40th anniversary tour. So yeah. it's amazing to think about the sustainability of that to start back at 78. Absolutely. And you were already doing it, as you said, years before that, which yeah. people wouldn't probably have realized. Solo. 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 So, I mean, this has been your life, really. Yeah. Yes. And the music for all ages... Was that, were all three of you doing that? I guess you probably were. Like, meaning it, the, the music you were doing at the time, um, you know, you I see... For, the, for us as a trio or pre that? Pre that. Pre was that. It? More, well... Not in the same kind of form. I, I had something of, a, uh, something of a career doing adult stuff in, in folk festivals and coffee houses, as you did. I did a bit as well. But it was not families. Right. Right. Right, it was... Oh, was a, the folky audience. And I did that for a while, but I kept falling back into situations that involved music for children. But once we started doing the music we did collectively, we, 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 knew. we understood that it, we wanted it to... I mean, first of all, it had to appeal to us. We're not children. So it had to appeal to us. So it should appeal to other adults as well. And we also knew that the best... We knew from the way we lived. We, I mean, we would have parties with all ages, with, with our kids and the grown-ups and, and playing games together, playing musical games, stuff like that. So we understood, we understood from the way we lived the notion of family entertainment. Now, even though we look like middle-class people, we're, we really are folkies in that sense that, that families getting together are the real thing. And, and making music together and playing games together, all that kind of thing, is 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 the heart of, of of what we're about, and we carried that over into what we were doing for the public, and it worked. We were very, we were very lucky be, being in the right time, in the right place, with the right frame of mind, and a good product. Well, when I say frame of mind, I I meant all of that went together to make the product. Yeah. So, one of the things I find so interesting about that, I mentioned that I have a, well, I'll call him an almost two-year-old, because I find the, the months part for me challenging, so I'll just say almost two, and I watch him, like, so each morning now he gets up, and he grabs the remote, the TV remote, <laughs> and again, he's not too He wants to watch the news. Well, no, he, he doesn't, and he doesn't talk yet, so what he do, does is he points to the TV, so his thing is the Wiggles, the, yes. and the Wiggles, the right. Australian band, so he, he grabs the remote and points at the TV and basically is telling us, put it on the wiggles. And if we put on something else, he, he's not happy. But my, my point of all this is here I am, 
uh, 43, and my girlfriend, I said to her the other day uh, that I was coming here to do this interview, and I said, remember Skinnamarink? And she's like, let's put it on for the baby. And then he's, you know, he gets on and he loves it. And so there's another side to the idea of making music for all ages, especially children, of the amount of impact you can have on generations. Yes. Because here I'm, like I say, 43, and I grew up listening to the song, and now my, my girlfriend's able to play it. I think she played it on YouTube, which is amazing. Yeah, and we're, then all, my son's YouTube, we're all over YouTube. It's not our doing. Right. It's other people's doing. Well, well it's, it's, lovely that, it's lovely that it speaks. I mean, we're very aware of that. I mean, that's who we, that's who we spoke to from, from day one. Children and parents, and sometimes grandparents, and Bram likes to say now that a few great-great-grandparents turn up too. So we love that, and we love the idea. It thrills me to hear that people who grew up on us, who, are feel, who feel nostalgic and kind of emotional about connecting with us, introduce us to the children. You know, what, what, what was our goal if you had to identify a goal? Or, you know, we have many goals but introducing wonderful music to children and their families and introducing it in a way that showed them that they could make it part of their lives. So when the parents are teaching the children, I feel like we've accomplished that. Also, we, we knew right from the beginning that we didn't want to do anything that was trendy. Trends come and they go. Year, two years, whatever, then it's gone. We wanted to make our repertoire and our approach um, ageless. Call it classic if you like. It's not classical music, but it's stuff that doesn't go out of style. So take, she'll be coming round the mountain. First that's record, a, 1978. That's an old chestnut, as they say. And if you're two years old and it's the first time you hear it, <laughs> Brand new. It's a brand new record, a, a <laughs> so, brand new song. And so it doesn't go out of style. And the kid incorporates that into his or her own being. And it's the same with many, many of the songs that we do. They, they learn them, they know the choruses, and they're instant participants. It's, a, it's amazing. And going back to the point of 40 years, I think that's what helps, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that's what helps make it sustainable, yeah. is that the songs aren't trendy. They're not, and I say trendy, I mean they're not like of the moment. Exactly. And disappear exactly. In the next moment. They have the exactly. same appeal 40 years ago as they do now. But the thing is, it, it wasn't even a conscious decision no. so much. It's just that we were not attracted ourselves, personally. We don't trendy do trendy stuff. so well. <laughs> so it just wasn't a consideration. Uh, you know, that's in now, let's do that. It never came into our brain. Not our way. And so, and, and I'm jumping around a bit with this, but I'm wondering now with, with that many years of touring and entertaining, did you also have, now in the stand-up comedy world, we call them uh, heck gigs, you know, those gigs that don't go so well. Take the money and run. Yeah. <laughs> What's it called? Well, they, they would say hell gig. But a hell gig. A heck gig, I, I call it. No, I call it a hell gig. That's I, fine. I don't, yeah, I try to pretty it up sometimes, but a hell gig, we'd call it whenever, like, so Mike Bullard, you might remember from the open mic with Mike Bullard show here. Yes. Uh, he told me the story about how he used to perform at a comedy club where uh, there'd be like a hundred people, which in, a com in the comedy world, that's amazing. Yes. He said, but what people didn't realize is that 85 or 90 of them were there for the 99 cent spaghetti. 
and didn't know uh. he was going to be a comic on the stage. So that's kind of like a hell gig because they were just, they, he's the intrusion now instead of the entertainment. Yeah. And uh. so I'm just wondering, did you guys have any situation where you would look back and go, wow, what a show or whatever, or maybe, like it could be just even the equipment having issues or what have you, but. Uh, yeah, sure. Any career of any length has the times when things just kind of don't work out I'll in, tell you in too. every respect. <laughs> okay, <I'll tell> you. <laughs> <laughs> it was early in the career, and we got to, was we were performing in a school, which we did early in the career, and Bram had gone off to the room to set up the equipment, and as was our way, we wait a little while and then go join him. <laughs> Keep we, talking. <laughs> and we we got into the room where he was preparing the equipment. Do you remember the position you were in? I was sitting at a table with my head, my face in my hand. <laughs> we knew we were in trouble. <laughs> the sound was coming out of the things in the High ceiling. plates in the ceiling. There were no proper yeah. speakers. It was like, hello, this is your morning announcement. That's what we were going to sound like. Well, it's not a happy, a happy situation. The other one was just the two of us. We've gone to a small remote community and sent ahead was the information about stage sound, what we needed, the monitors and, you know, all that we needed on the stage for us. Assuming that... Not they, assuming. It not said ass with a professional sound person. Yeah. To deal with the stuff for the house. Well, we got there and the stuff for the stage was set up, it wasn't even wasn't set, up, set up, it was just all gathered in on the floor in the hall. Like, we'll set it up and then do it. <laughs> well, and there wasn't sound for the rest of the, there was there was a little bit of sound stuff for the stage and nothing else. So, we sang a cappella that time. We sang, oh. sang without sound. That was fine. It was okay. It was, it was okay because it was a small group. But there, was, there was another time we were, we were in a very strict school. <laughs> Uh, New York, Long Island. Yeah, uh, we were at a very, very strict school where the kids were all Religious in, in, school. in, in uniform. No, I wasn't going to say that. I said it. <laughs> and the, the, kids had, the kids had two speeds. The, their most normal speed was totally <laughs> repressed. The head, the principal said, now you will behave for these performers. That's how she like introduces. Yes. Now the performers. That's what she said. She didn't know. Now the performers. Words. Right. <laughs> and the kids had two speeds. In response to that, and on the ceiling. Just wild. N nothing in between. No quiet listening and singing along. And, and just being with us. They were either repressed or hysterical. And we did experience hysterical. I can't remember, was it one elephant or something that engaged them and went crazy? Oh, well, it was our mistake because we sang Jenny Jenkins, which is all about colors. And they, they <laughs> were, were all wearing the same They were color. all wearing blue and gray. Oh, my. <laughs> <laughs> but the thing is, when we got there, our sound guy had gone ahead and he was waiting at the gate for us. And as we drove in, he said, This is a take the money and run gig. <laughs> I was just thinking, when you're talking about your experience, uh, not doing so well in front of a, a comedy audience, there's, a, there's an expression that I know, that you'll know too. It's called flop sweat. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I do know that expression. You know, we played, <laughs> we played in situations where that were not well, well attended, and that's always disappointing. 
But I have stood in the wings many times and said, let's not punish the ones who are here. You know, you have to remember that... They're, they're the ones who came. They came. You know, that's, that's such a big lesson for people in every walk of life. Even in business today, people do... You know, they're running this online event where they're inviting people. And they're expecting 2,000 people and then four show up. And I've been on those things, listening to the people, and there's four there, and you can tell them their voice, that they're not thrilled anymore, and they're not happy to be there. And that's punishing the four people showing who might bring them in. It's difficult. You, yeah. That's, you have to work That's that. called being a professional. That's right. And the that part is, of your professionalism is treating that crowd the way you treat that crowd. And the thing is that, that, that not infrequently, that ends up being um, a different kind of rich experience. You get more connected to the audience, and it, it's, it has a benefit as well. You don't necessarily know that's going to happen, but I think frequently it has. Well, it's like one time in Akron, Ohio, there was a power failure <laughs> in the middle of the show. All the, the, the lights went off, the emergency lights went on, our sound system it's gone. died. And we're with and, a band. We're with a big band. And we're with a big band. And, Good for us. And... So we said, okay, we could quit now, but what will the audience do? You know, it, it's an event. We, we sat on the edge of the stage, acoustically, while the, 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 band. While the uh, tech people kind of worked on it. And they finally hooked up the sound system, or just the monitors, to the generator on the tour bus. Wow. <laughs> And they turned the monitors toward the audience. But we did the rest of the show sitting until on the it, edge of the stage. Until it got dark, and then we were concerned that people needed to be able to see their way out. <laughs> and the guys, you know, the guys all came forward. Even the bass player who was playing an electric bass couldn't really contribute anything. No. But they, everybody kind of rose to the... That was terrific. It was fun. So, it's, it's interesting... First of all, it's so amazing that as soon as one of you start talking about a story, as soon as you get to one key part of the story, it's amazing to see the other person go, oh, yeah, that story, because <laughs> cause you live it. Yeah. What I'm curious about, though, you mentioned a key thing about doing what you love and how amazing it is to be able to do what you love while also earning a living and supporting other people like your, your band and team. I'm curious uh, your thoughts on this, because what I've discovered in interviewing people and talking about passion and purpose and what have you, that people that have found their purpose seem to seem younger, they seem to be happier overall, they uh, seem to get sick less often. Like, it seems like there's so many benefits to actually spending days doing what you love other like, versus being maybe at something that you really don't enjoy, meaning a job-wise, that you don't enjoy. Clearly. Uh, what are you Clearly. Yeah, so I was going to say, what are your thoughts on the importance of people finding their calling, if they can? I'm begging your pardon. Yeah. It's healthier. It's just healthier to get positive feedback from what you're doing uh, that feeds your, your mind and your soul. And it's got to be good for you, it, mentally, emotionally, and physically. There's no, there's no question about it. I mean, if you're in a, in a job on an assembly line, or, uh, and some people get off on that, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But for us, that's not what we need to do. It's good for some people. Uh, and so, yes, you're right. They say the, the longest living uh, uh, artists are, are symphony conductors. 
Well, I wouldn't have guessed that. Yeah, because they're doing something that they love. They're they creating love beauty. The music, and it's just coming to them from a whole orchestra and yeah, just surrounding them with that wonderful sound. That's really And they get to do this yeah, at the good same time. Yeah, for the <laughs> Yeah, they get to make the funnest movement action ever. Yeah. I thought. Oh, I could I've, be better than that. I yeah, thought I, forever. I, never I hadn't either, actually. I thought forever that that to be able to work at something you love is is as good as it can be. And I think we're fortunate to, to have had that kind of career. It's not to say there aren't struggles along the way, there aren't irritations or problems or challenges. That's everywhere, that's life. But to do to go every day, I can't imagine what it must feel like to go every day to a job that you don't like. It's well, crushing. It must be. Well, and I mean, I, you hate to say it, but a lot of the people that are in that situation, they when they talk about retirement, they know the age. Like, they're like, if I can retire at whatever, 55 or 60, I'm going to do it, or 65 at the latest. And then you see artists who, like yourselves, are just like, retirement. You know, like, now you're, you're yeah. doing a farewell tour, but I mean... Uh, but we're long, a lot older than long, long past what people say when, retirement exactly. age. That's what I'm getting at. You wouldn't be able to sustain that probably if you're doing a job you dredge to go into every day. Do you think? Do you think that years ago, because now it's not just us; it's rock and roll performers. They're seventies, and you know. Do you think years ago, like thirty years ago, people our age would have been able to stay in their fields, their their entertainment fields, that long? Or do you think it's a fairly new phenomenon no, as the uh, ages no, have grown? Some, some, some certainly have. I think back on like Carol Burnett, or yeah, a lot of people. A lot of it's it's been a constant that the your your career feeds you, and, and people stay with it. Yeah, and people and people stay with it. I mean, look at you know Victor Borga and, and a lot of the classical people, Paganini. They were in it into their seventies and eighties. Uh -huh. Okay. Out there performing, which is a which curious. is a wonderful thing. But you put me in mind of the fact that some of the parents, anyhow, maybe more than than fewer, are the people with those jobs that they hate who come to us to get a little injection of of, of what it's like to have fun. Have fun, exactly. You know, when you say that too, I think about the stand up when I used to do stand up years ago. People would say, "Why do you, especially early on, why would you go to a comedy club and pay gas money to get there, and sometimes the take at the door was less than the gas money? Why would you, and then prepare or practice for 10 hours for 15 minutes on stage, and it's exactly that. I, at first I was like, why am I doing this? But then I thought, because I used to go to comedy clubs, when I didn't, and I was fairly young, but I didn't like my job, and it was my escape one time a week. So I'm like, I'm giving that to people for 15 minutes. You can't put a price tag on that. No, absolutely. Exactly no, you absolutely. can't. You can't. And the real artists, the real artists are the ones that, even though they might make it and make money at it, that's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because it brings them satisfaction. And it brings others satisfaction. Exactly. Yeah. And the connection. Yeah, I, I always, when you hear that saying, what would you do for free, because you love it, if money was an issue, and you hear people that are maybe making a good living, that say, you know what, I would do this for free, but don't tell my clients. <laughs> Ray Charles was, was asked, uh, so how is it now that you've, you've made it, 
and you're a big star and you're making a lot of money. And he said, what you just said, I would do the music for free because I love it. The reason I make the big money is for getting on all of those airplanes oh, and right. talking to all of those people. <laughs> you know, there's, <laughs> that's a, such a great point. Uh, there's a comedian, uh, I'm jogging a, a blank on his name, Matt, I forget what his last name is, but the story still serves in terms of him being a stand-up comic. Uh, based, I know he's based in Vancouver, and I was at a speaking engagement, and he came in, and I was kind of the MC for him as the stand-up comic. And I remember overhearing one of the people say, and he was nearby, he could overhear it, and they didn't realize, I don't think. They said, I can't believe we paid him so much to bring him here, etc., etc. And he said, you know, and, and more of a joking way, he didn't kind of, wasn't attacking them, but he just said, you know, it's interesting you say that, because a lot of people think that. But the truth is, you didn't pay me for the 45 minutes on stage here, I'm doing that for free. What you paid me for is to get on a plane, right. leave my family, and the same thing you said. Yeah. Um, you know, he, his wasn't as funny as Ray Charles because you know, he paid me to have to talk to people. But he, he was like, you know, you're really paying me for everything the else. The bigger picture. The bigger picture. And maybe the flight Life. delays and having to try to figure out another flight and get a rent-a-car and then get a problem at the rental company because exactly. they're, they're out of cars and then have to deal with that stress. And, it's, and it's I so have much great bigger. sympathy for that because it's timely because yesterday... My daughter did a bunch of research on flights, and then I spent, I don't know, two and a half or three hours booking flights. It's hell. Now, it, it, it used to be that we had, a, we had a, a, an office, an office and a staff that did it, but, but in these recent years, we haven't. So yeah, so do we it do. Ourselves. That's amazing. And so I, this is a, it's a weird interjection, but uh, Ram, earlier I saw it with your shirt, I saw that a little bit more of your shirt. And so I, you have some words on your shirt under, underneath you. So I'm, I'm curious because I think I saw what it said, and I think it relates to what you guys do. <laughs> we had these made. Uh, actually, uh, Randy Sharon's daughter designed and had these made for for the audience. Yeah, who wanted to get them, and and for us. Yeah. So I decided right. to wear this today. That's awesome. We have and, a we have a book coming out. It's called Sharon Lois and Bram Skinnerink. And it will be out in the fall, and it's an illustrated picture book for children and their families. And Randy has written additional words for the for the song because the the song is just a little chorus, which everybody in the world sings. I think, which thrills us, of course. But but the the extended words talk about, in a sense, they talk about "I love you," being a message for everyone, all kinds of people in all kinds of places, in all kinds of situations. Universal message for to speak to everyone. And we're very proud of the book, and it's coming out, as I say, in September, Penguin Random House. It's called Sharon Lawson Brown's Skinnamarine. Yeah. And it has the full name of the trio, yeah. because Lois was... Part of that. She brought us the song. That's right. I, and I was going to ask you about Lois. Before, uh, before we jump there, though, when you mentioned with the book, and I know you're on the farewell tour... Will those coincide, meaning, uh, do you have a, a fixed date in the next month or two that now we're done with the tour and then the book comes out, or will it come out while yeah, you're still touring? Yeah, we're going to finish touring in, in July, but there will be PR events that have to do with the release of the book and some recordings that we've done also, and we'll certainly do those, but we're, we're not... We're not going to tour. We're not going to tour. But, you know, the thing is, I say, you never know... <coughs> 
what life will bring you. So when people say, what are you going to do next? I don't know. But, you know, life is full of surprises and sometimes something will comes, reaches out to you and speaks to you. Who knows? 19, Maybe nothing. 1994, we performed at the White House. We're not doing that again. Especially now. That's right. <laughs> 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 the, the, uh, uh, touche. The, um, the part I was going to ask with, with Lois, because that's a part for people watching and listening, and maybe newer audiences that are discovering you on the tour, uh, but didn't know of the band before that. Right. Uh, can you talk a bit about that? You know, How long were you performing with Lois? And then even the other side, and, and it's up to you if you want to go there, but how hard was it to perform without Lois? Because that was such a you know, unit for so many years. Well, well for sure. the answer is 50-50. And what do I mean by that? What I mean is that we started together in 1978 as a trio. And we went through until 1999-ish. Uh, yeah, he Lois's husband, Ernest, died. In 98. And as, as, as some people have said, somebody said about them, they had a very close marriage, whatever that means. <laughs> and it kind of pulled the rug out from under her feet. She tried to continue. Briefly, very briefly. But she just didn't have, the, uh, didn't have the zest anymore. She said, I cannot do this anymore. And we said, well, we can. And, and we want to. And we want to. And, and she so was okay we, with that. Yeah, and we continued. So it's been about half and half with Lois, and the other half with just the two of us, and uh, we had to remake vocal arrangements to make the arrangements for two voices instead of three. But a big help in that was Sharon's husband, Joe, who um, did a lot of arranging for us, both yeah. at three and two. You know, an interesting thing, um, Ernest was, he, he was very ill in 98, and we were preparing a new show. And we worked for several months preparing that new show without Lois, but we had a plan. This is a two-person show and this is a three-person show. Right. And so we prepared with that understanding. This is how we would do it if Lois can't do it. So in a way, we kind of started. I'd forgotten about that. I remember that so well. I even remember the director we worked with. So, And Ernest died during that period, toward the end of the prep of that show. And um, we did all the shows that were projected for the fall without Lois. I mean, Lois was grieving, and obviously. And I think she joined us for a few shows in the new year, and then she said, I can't do this. So, you know, the thing is, we were, we're like a family. I mean, yesterday was her son's birthday. I sent a message to him. You know, we're very connected. We were with Lois. We were, we were friends and saw each other. We were business associates, too, and so we saw each other constantly. We actually did a TV special after Lois retired, 25 years of skin and rink, and Lois participated She came out, in of, out of retirement and to do was that. a full participant. Totally, totally. So we, were, we stayed strongly connected to her, and as she um, declined, we were there all the time. We were there all the time. We we're really were like family, really like family. And in a lot of ways, like you mentioned the book, uh, with her included, you're keeping her legacy oh, alive for sure. as well, which is really important. But we're keeping her legacy in the, in the 
two dozen or so LPs. <laughs> they still exist. So. <laughs> and the and they're selling, yeah, they're selling new ones. Yeah. Back. Uh, and the they're still out there. Yeah, and she's very and much she's there. there. And people miss her, and people ask us, you know, they tell us they're sad that she's not there. But they don't know when they tell us that is that she hasn't been there for 20 years. But they haven't seen us during that time, so it, it, they, don't, they don't know that. We also, in some of the shows that we're doing currently, depending on the facility that we're in, we have a little video that came. We, we created a wonderful memorial for Lois. It was fabulous. It took us months and months and months. And there were videos in the memorial along with speeches and music and all that. And one of the vi most of the videos featured Lois, but one of them featured the trio. And we play that video at the beginning of the shows where they have the facility for us to do that. It's about, I don't know, about a minute or two? It's a few minutes. A few minutes. And it's, uh, we ain't got a barrel of money, but we'll travel along singing songs side, side by side. side. Mm -hmm. And then there's all perfect. kinds of, it's perfect message and all kinds of clips of the three of us doing zany things. So people and love the audience. Yeah, and they love seeing that. So we, we keep her in the show in that way when we can. It's not always possible, depending on the venue. So a little bit of a, another sort of segue in a different direction as we start to wind our way down. But, you know, we've kind of talked about the performance and business and the career. Um, I'm curious, out of all of that, how do you, and you can both take this if you want or each, but how do you define success? That's a big word, right? And it's... I, I think it, one uh, big part of it is satisfaction. Are you satisfied with what you have done and what you are doing? Does it meet your, all of the needs that you have? Uh, does it meet your artistic needs? Does it meet your Economic. supporting myself and my family needs? Is it, is it a good part of me? If you're very rich but you hate the way you, what you have to do to be rich, that's only partially successful. Mm -hmm. To be totally successful, you have to have congruence among all of all those, those things. Yeah, being being proud of what you do is is part of that. Yeah, and I think knowing that you give pleasure to other people is. A huge success. I've read psychological studies that have to do with polling the general population about what makes them feel happy. And again and again I read it's the opportunity and the doing of it to help other people. That's the biggest satisfaction that in people life. Yeah. And if you can make your living doing that, it doesn't get better than that. So interesting you say that because I have an interview coming up in Vancouver in May with a gentleman named Dr. John Izzo. And John Izzo uh, had a PBS special and a book called The Five Secrets You Must Discover Before You Die. <laughs> yes, I want to read it. <laughs> and, <laughs> what, I, you know, I might have the age wrong. It was either you had to be 59 or older or 69 or older. I can't remember the age. He interviewed 200 people and he wanted it to be from every walk of life you can imagine. And so what he wanted to discover are what are the five things they all say they wish they knew sooner. So... Well, and, and the one that popped into my head based on what you just said was that he said um, you have to, well, they said that what they would have done sooner is started serving people. 
And whether that means Start what? serving people, so donating uh-huh. their time, volunteering, giving back to other people. So, as you mentioned, having an impact on other people was one of them. Yeah. Another one was we talked earlier that I remember was about finding your purpose or your calling. Yeah. They wish they would have worked harder in finding that earlier in life. Yeah. Uh, I think another one was not to make it so much about money or fi- you know or, or economic or finances. So it was those kind of those things. Those are all related. Just, yeah. Absolutely. But the kinds of stuff we've been discussing. Yeah. And so my, my follow-up question to the success one, and then this one here, um, I'm going to open it up to uh, two different answers because you can choose whichever path you want. But if you could jump into a time machine and go back and talk to your younger selves and give them a piece of life advice based on what you've learned in the years since, would you go back in the time machine and give them some advice or would you just say, you know what, they don't, you know, they're don't, you better off just to follow their own path? I'm just curious your thoughts on that. I, I think, you know... The way your life unfolds for you is the education. You know, that's how you learn about life. And mostly when you're younger, you're not interested in what someone else tells you about how to live life better. So, I don't know. Would it have helped me to learn stuff earlier? Probably, but would I have been open to learning it? You know, when you're young, you think you know where you're going and how to get there and all that stuff. If I could change one thing about my nature, like recently I've decided that I need to be more zen about stuff that causes me stress and difficulty. And I'm working on that and I'm getting better at that. Yes, you are. And it would have been really good if I had been able to do that a long time ago. <laughs> but, you know, you have to be open to that. There, there are two streams uh, in your youth. One stream is you've got to finish your schooling, you've got to get an education, You've got to use your education to get yourself a good job and all that goes with that. And the other stream uh, is you can do anything that you want, that you feel that you need to do that reflects who you are. And those are often of course. in conflict with each other. And, and the, the, the difference is shown in who becomes... Uh, a, a person in, in a business that they don't really care about and who becomes an artist. Or an entrepreneur of some sort. Or an entrepreneur. Well, that's that, an art. Yeah, that, but people, that, that decision is scary. And so people often go for the, the more logical, secure, not understanding that what they're embarking on is years and years and years of less pleasure, which is too bad. So my last question, and, uh, and if you have any other thoughts on that one, you can add it in as well. But my last question, I'm gonna—it's sort of a two-part question, but it ties together. Which is, uh, you know, you're you're on the farewell tour. So I guess the question I have out of that is, you know, what should people know if somebody's maybe listening or viewing who uh, listened as a, as a, a child but didn't know you're on this tour or uh, want, should introduce their child to it? They maybe have a child now, like me. Um, what would you tell them about this? farewell tour, why should they come out, uh, maybe it's the last time they can see you live, what would you throw out there, and then the second part to the question is how can they learn more about the tour? Well, we have done more PR about this tour than These I last think, six months, yeah. uh, well, last year, last, yeah, than ever. we've ever done before, we really wanted to get the word out that, okay folks, this is it, the party's over, and and so we've done interviews and we've done broadcasts and we've done newspaper stuff and we've, we've done everything. 
was through a publicist. But it's also in response to the announcement that it's a final tour there. You know, you can want to do a lot of PR and it doesn't happen, but there was a huge response to the announcement that this, that this was the final tour. So we've put the word out there. We have a website, SharonandBram.com, and all the shows are listed. So hopefully one way or another people will find out about the tour. And in terms of what we're doing, why they should come, well, first of all, if they grew up on us, they're probably going to shed a few tears. We find that a lot with the 30-somethings who come to the tours, to the shows, because, and there's, they sometimes are embarrassed that they get weepy, but I say to them, don't be embarrassed. You're remembering happy family childhood memories. That's only a good thing. So coming to the show, they'll hear lots of what they remember, and they'll hear at least four new songs that we have recorded. First time that we've recorded just the two of us in the last few months, and we're very excited about them. The Color Song, the Hug Song, Talk About Peace, and the New Skin and Rink. They'll hear all of those. And the beauty for us, we didn't know this would happen, but the beauty for us has been, since we started singing those songs, that they sing them all with us. They participate in all of it. Well, one of the, one of the reasons they sing with us is because songs that are written in the folk style with, uh, with choruses are easily learned. So even Accessible. if it's a brand new song, they can listen to the verses, but once they've heard the chorus once or twice, they're part of it already, even if it's a brand new song for them. And that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. Absolutely. So, and also, they should come because they don't have loads of opportunities, of opportunities to sing together, and people love singing together. They do it from the minute we walk on stage. Awesome. It's amazing. And so, anything else you wanted to share? No, I wanted to tell you about the, the new albums, the new recordings, so we, did, we got to do that. I can't think of anything else, can you? One of the interesting things is that we started our career with concerts at the Young People's Theatre here in Toronto. That was our first venue for the trio in our band. And we theater. thought, we thought, it would be really good to bookend the career. And so we planned our, our goodbye concerts here in Toronto at the Young People's Theatre. So there was a 40-year gap. Wow. And was that was fun. great. That was yeah, we did great. a bunch of concerts there. It was fun. Awesome. Well, I wish you all the success with Thank the shows. You. I know they're going to be a success. I'm going to, however I have to do it, I'm going to make sure I get my, my son out to one of the shows. And uh, Yeah, we're not coming to PEI. No. I but we're coming to Halifax. Well, <coughs> I, I saw that, and I think I'm actually going to be around then. But even if I'm not, I'll, I'll come to Ontario for the bookend show. I'll figure it away. No, no, that's oh, done. That's oh, it's already done. done. Oh, it's already, like, you mean it's already happened? It's happened. It was the first show of, yeah, it was the, they were the first shows oh, okay. of the, of okay. the tour. I thought you meant it was, like, the last no. show of this tour. No, no, okay. the last one actually is going to be in Brampton at the Rose Theatre. Still going to be in Ontario. Yeah, it's Ontario. Yeah. Um, Paula Gallivan, who was the elephant on the elephant show, who is a lifelong friend, has a home, uh, a summer home in PEI, so she's going to be there, I think, all summer. I said, maybe I will. And uh, I she's also, she lives in Bermuda, but she has a place in PEI and, and spends time there and uh, is will come to Halifax for the shows. Plus, 
she's bought a million tickets for all her family. <laughs> <laughs> Love that when that happens. Yeah. Awesome. Well, like I said, this has been Thank an you. absolute pleasure. So Great. keep making magic happen, and we will do our best, my family, to come out and check out at least one of the shows, maybe two. So. Thank you. Thank You're you. a wonderful interviewer. Oh, thank you so much. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.